0: The broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's spirit and modeled by God's son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Those of you in the room, glad that you're here. Those of you in Skagit at our campus there with Pastor Scott and everybody, so glad that you're with us, as well as those at Jim Church and those of you online. Uh, we are glad to all be together uh, today. We're in this series, I don't know, this is like week, uh, six or seven of the series of uh, the beauty of becoming. The, the genesis of the series was an idea spawned by a book that a friend of mine wrote, Gary Thomas. Many of you know Gary; we've had him here speaking. But it was called "The Glorious Pursuit," and that kind of was the uh, the starting point for this series. And we've had a, a an anchor verse for this series of of the beauty of becoming it comes out of a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people that he had started their church on his second missionary journey probably around the year 50 he was in Corinth in Greece and uh, met these people, told them about Jesus. They discovered the grace of Christ. They received that. They were brought into the kingdom of God, the, the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ there in Corinth. And while they were living in this grace in this new kingdom, they had a lot of residual stuff from their former life, their life before Christ, and some of the culture around them. So much so that if you read the letters to the, the church in Corinthians and the surrounding area, you realize they could have renamed their, their church You know, the hot mess express because I mean, they were just a a, man, a a seriously messed up group, but had found the grace of Christ. And and, uh, Paul refers to them as saints, these uh, ones that have been uh, called out uh, by Christ. And in his second letter that we have that he wrote to them, he wrote these words. And again, this has kind of been our, our anchor verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed with ever increasing glory. And that's this whole idea that, that we are all a, a work in process. You know, and most of us would agree with that. You know, I'm not perfect, you know, God's still working on me, I've got a long way to go. It's a work in process being transformed. Not only should we be a work in process, we're a work with progress, like ever increasing glory. Because you could sit around saying, Well, I'm not perfect and say that for the rest of your life and never actually grow. That's not the idea. The idea is that there would be intentional and even incremental growth steps as we become more and more like Christ. And, and thus, the name of this series, The Beauty of Becoming. And I want to expand that even uh, for our purposes tonight to say it's The Beauty of Becoming, Becoming. And that's not a stuttering, that's not being just redundant. The word becoming actually is a a very unique word in that it can be a a present progressive verb, it can be an adjective, and it can be a noun. Now I'm really not good with those kind of parts of of speech and such, but I have someone who helps me with these things to, to explain that to me. And so when you say the beauty of becoming, becoming, that word serves as a noun and an adjective has kind of a different purpose and a different meaning in that. The first becoming in that phrase is a noun. It's called a, a gerund noun. It's a noun that ends with I-N-G. And the second one is the adjective. It's to explain. It's to describe this, this becoming, becoming that we are becoming beautiful, we're becoming attractive, we're becoming winsome, we're we're becoming glorious. There's this ongoing change to to being something more more fantastic than we could have ever dreamed up on our own or could have ever accomplished on our own. It's that picture of of metamorphosis. It's, It's the little glorified worm caterpillar that has this process of becoming, becoming. Over time, it's transformed into this beautiful becoming creature, a, a butterfly. If you've ever read the book, uh, the allegory, uh, "Hinds Feet on High Places, it's the story of this beautiful becoming, becoming, that this little little much afraid over time, there's this transformation that takes place, and she doesn't even realize it toward at the end. She is no longer much afraid. Now she is referred to as grace and glory, and now she's very becoming. I mean, to use that word becoming of this beauty and this attraction, this glory, I think about a picture of... of of weddings that I've done. When, you, when someone say, oh, the bride was so becoming. I mean, just radiant. And, and let me tell you, I've, I've done a lot of weddings over the years, and there's something about that, standing at the front of a church, and, and the groom is there, and he's nervous, and he's excited, and all the groomsmen, and the bridesmaids, and ring bearers, and flower girls, and all that. And then the door, the back of the sanctuary opens up, and here she comes with her father, this glorious, radiant bride. She is becoming but that didn't happen overnight. There was a process of becoming, becoming. It started long before that moment. There were trips to get nails and toenails done and <laughs> spray on tans, and teeth whitened. And then that day, that day, there's a, it's like a pit crew from Indy 500, they just converge on this gal and, doing the makeup and fake eyelashes and the hair and the baby's breath and then to all together squeeze her into that dress and to make sure this stays in and this gets pushed up and all this stuff. And then she comes and it's this beautiful, the the bride is becoming. But there was a process of becoming, becoming. And when you think about that picture, we are the bride of Christ. The radiant bride of Christ that is becoming, becoming. And that's what this series is all about. We've been talking about the process. It's not about our salvation, it's about this transformation that takes place, this, this ongoing uh, metamorphosis in our life. The, the old church word is, is the sanctification, becoming more like Christ with ever increasing glory. And so we've been looking at some of the virtues that were taught not only in Scripture, but throughout the ages with the, the church fathers of these these virtues in our life where Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith these kind of things. Continue on in this. And so we've looked at a few. And we looked the very first week at at this virtue of kindness. Not the first week of the series. First two weeks of the series was talking about this transformation process. First uh, virtue we looked at was kindness. And then we looked at the virtue of obedience. And then Pastor Kick uh, took us through uh, the, the surrender and then to generosity. And then last week we lurk, looked at perseverance. And today we're going to look at another virtue. And the virtue we're going to look at today, I would say, is not spoken of a lot in faith traditions like ours. Uh, in fact, some would probably just ignore it altogether. Some might say it's obsolete, it's, it's archaic. We, you know, we don't even use that terminology anymore. And, and some... Some might just say, you know what, I don't even want to hear about it because when I tell you what this virtue is, there may be even within you a bit of a response. There may be something in, inside of you that's like, oh, one of those kind of responses. Or it might be a trigger of, of something that happened to you maybe other time in life or it might just be this kind of this eye roll. The virtue that we're going to look at today, this beautiful virtue that we're going to look at today is the virtue of penitence. Penitence. It's, it's a word that we don't use a whole lot in these kind of settings. Now, for some of you, that may have already, you may have said, ah, why penitence? Couldn't we have done something better? Well, we will, but, but I think this is good. Here's an interesting thing. If you don't want to sit through this sermon, of course, I can't make you. Some of you have already signed off, but that's fine. But I Googled the virtue of penitence, and you know what the first thing that came up was? World of Warcraft. I had no idea that apparently in the World of Warcraft, you can get the virtue of penitence. You only have to listen to the sermon. But we're not talking about a video game here. But for some, that, that, that word penitence, it just, it feels like there's, okay, now there's guilt and shame. I'm already feeling bad enough. And now we're going to talk about penitence. And some of you maybe, maybe have had some experiences from the past, maybe in a Catholic church where you were... Forced to go and sit in a little booth and tell someone all your sins, and it was a a nervous moment, you didn't like it, and maybe there was all these, how many Hail Marys and Our Fathers you have to say afterwards and all that, and maybe it's got a negative connotation, maybe not. Maybe for some of you, it's just like this, that penitence is like self-loathing, isn't it? Like, like this self-degradation and, you know, what a wretched worm am I kind of a thing. And, and if you read some of church history, it's even in, in self-flagellation of like hurting themselves. You're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that, and neither do I. What I want to suggest to you is that maybe we have done ourselves a great disservice a pendulum swinging away from this beautiful virtue of penitence. And my my prayer is this, is that in our time together today, that maybe, maybe something could just bring a glimpse of the beauty of this virtue. Now, I will say this, two, two things right up front that I'm just going to acknowledge right, right from the very beginning. Today is one of those sermons where I'm going to be all over the place. I mean, I'm going to be telling you a bunch of different ideas and some thoughts and some perspectives on penitence. We're going to look at what Jesus said about it. I'm going to give you an illustration that I came up with that may not be very good. And then we're going to look at a profound truth at the end. Listen, here's the deal. If you get nothing at all out of this sermon, that won't surprise me. It's going to be all over the place. But if you can find something to hold on to somewhere, even in the early parts, and you say, I can hold on to that one, check out for the rest of it. That, my, I will be super happy about that. So let's let's get into this and and try this. One other thing about this is that while I know that the word repentance and the word penitence are related, they are different, but I may use them a little interchangeably. And for some of you, if you get hung up on that, let me just repent right now. I'm sorry, but if you can go with me on that. All right, so let's get into it because it's going to be all over the place. In the Old Testament... When God wanted to have penitence, some repentance from his people, he would send a prophet. Now, prophets throughout the Old Testament, they would come and say, listen, hey, you've gotten off track, or you, you need to get this right. You don't find prophets that come to town and say, hey, I'm the prophet of God, God sent me to tell, me, tell you guys, man, everything's going great, you're doing fantastic, you're killing it, This is God's so happy with you. That's not what the prophets did. The prophets came and said, listen, something's out of line here. You guys got to get back on track, or else there's going to be something that will help you get back on track, and you can avoid that if you want to. And after Malachi, God kind of went quiet for a while. For 400 years, there were no prophets sent from God. For 400 years, God never said, here's something new I want for my people, Israel. 400 years of silence. And then one day, there's this old, old priest. His name was Zechariah. He was at the temple doing his duty of burning the incense and such. And Gabriel, the angel, appeared to him. He's there in the the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary there. And uh, and Gabriel appears to him. And he says, you're going to have a son. And he's like, well, my wife and I are kind of beyond that. And I mean, they've wanted to, but they're along in years. And Gabriel says to him, your son is going to be a very unique individual. In essence, he's going to be a prophet. And he is going to come, and these were his words, in the power of Elijah. Elijah was like the prophet. He's coming in the power of Elijah. And what he's going to do for this this people of mine, it's an amazing thing. And not only that, But he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah that you have waited for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the promised one. He's going to go first and usher into this new day with this Messiah coming and the kingdom. And sure enough, nine months later, they had a little boy. His name was John, John the Baptist. Now, because his parents, John's parents were older, most believe that his parents probably died when John was younger. And many believe that even maybe as young as his teenage years, he may have gone off to to a separatist group called the Essenes out kind of by the Dead Sea. They're the ones that, that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. He may have been a part of that. But then when he's 31 years of age, he comes back on the scene, and this is what we read. I know that was a long intro, but here's what we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, so now, 400 years of silence, God hasn't sent a prophet for 400 years. Here's the prophet. It's a new day. He's coming. He's getting ready. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And now these words, the first words that come out of his mouth after 400 years, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the first word is this word repent. Now I'm not going to get into the Greek. That's, That's Kip's department. The word is metanoia. It means to change your mind. In Dallas Willard's book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, we've talked about this book before, uh, he he defines repent this way. Before I say it, let me just tell you this. If ever you hear me say Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, you can rest assured that I heard John Ortberg say Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. I own the book. I've tried to read it multiple times. It's just, uh, so maybe I should say John Ortberg said that Dallas Willard wrote in The Divine Conspiracy this definition of what it means to repent. He said to repent means to reconsider your strategy for living, to reconsider your strategy for living. I'll say, to paraphrase it, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? It's to look at your life and see what's going on and just ask, how's that working for you? And if it's not so good, then maybe you ought to reconsider the strategy that you are living with. Maybe there is some truth to God's word. Maybe it's better to go God's way. Maybe it's kind of important to not have your will, but God's will, and to have that as your new strategy. Because I believe that a penitent life is a flourishing life. And so often we just think of it as, no, no, this penitence and a penitent life, that must be filled with guilt, just this guilt-laden, you know, self-deprecating, a horrible situation. Not so. Look at what Jesus said. Look at what Jesus said when he talked about this in Mark chapter 1. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. He puts repent together with good news. A lot of times when you hear the word repent, you think it's with this anger and this this stern face. I think Jesus is smiling saying, hey, repent. Reconsider the strategy you're going with because there's good news. There's this kingdom way. There's a different way to think. There's a different way to live. There's a different way to have your life. You just need to rethink and reconsider your strategy and go with this kingdom way instead. And maybe to live that way. You know, right now, and again, this is one that in our context we don't put a huge emphasis on. We're in the season of Lent. The Lenten season. These days leading up to the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And N.T. Wright said this about Lent. He said, Lent is a time for discipline, confession, and honesty. Not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things he now has in store. do you love that? I mean, in that first, uh, first virtue we looked at, kindness, we saw that verse in Acts where it says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Why? because he wants us to experience the fullness of life. He wants us to know the goodness of life. So maybe you begin to think, okay, well then, maybe I should do that, maybe I should repent more, repent of my sins, or repent of these things. And I would say yes, absolutely, we're gonna look at that. But don't get obsessive with this. In the 16th century, there was a young monk named Martin Luther, and he just got fixated on this, I've got to repent, I've got to always gotta kind of get my, you know, the, the ledger clean before God. It was said of Martin Luther when he was a monk that he would spend up to six hours a day in the confessional, confessing every sin he could think of from that day, probably wearing the father out. And then if he would leave the church and remember something else that he had done that he had forgotten, he would come back and confess some more. Now that's a little bit of an overkill. That's not what we're looking for. Fortunately for him and for us, he discovered Romans chapter 1, 17, and that whole thing changed his life that the, that the just will live by faith, the righteous will live by faith, and it changed his life. And some of you are familiar that as he studied the book of Romans, especially in the book of Galatians, he began to just see what was opened up before him of his life in the righteousness of Christ. And he typed up, he wrote up, I guess he didn't type at all. He wrote up, <laughs> you know, in 1517, it was pretty uh, <laughs> archaic. He wrote up the 95 Theses that he, he nailed onto the, the church door in Wittenberg on October uh, 31st, uh, uh, you know, 500 years ago. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all messed up by typing up stuff in, in the 16th century. Of the 95 Theses, this was the very first one. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, Repent, will that the whole life of believers Should be one of repentance. Now, while he had gotten away from that unhealthy obsession with, I've got to say, he did not lose the importance, a whole life of repentance, a whole life of reconsidering what is the strategy that I'm living with. Over and over again to think this. Now, right now you might be saying, but I thought if we asked for forgiveness that Christ forgave us and I thought his death on the cross was good enough for my sins, past, present, and future, and isn't that the case? Yes, that is the case. And that's the justification of our lives because of what Christ has done. What we're talking about is the ongoing transformation. It's this sanctification. And there's something about having this regular time of rethinking, reconsidering the strategies of my life. See, if all we think about is I just need to be forgiven so that I get to heaven someday, and that's a part of it, but we miss out on the beautiful part of it. So I'll just tell on myself, and I know that probably none of you would ever identify with this, but when I was a little boy, there was a part of me that lived with an unhealthy fear of God. And at night before I would go to sleep, I would pray a prayer something like this. Dear Jesus, forgive me for everything I've done today. Amen. Kind of a blanket policy prayer. Kind of an omnibus prayer. I'm just, I, I know there's stuff, but just, just kind of forgive all of that, you know? And if I was ever specific, I, it, the prayer was a little bit more like the old Britney Spears song. Oops, I did it again. That kind of a thing. But if that's all there is to it, just this legal transaction that somehow I want to be forgiven, I want to be declared innocent so that I can escape pain and maybe some punishment, we've missed the beauty of it. To just say, well, yeah, I've done something wrong. I've, I've done this wrong And usually we're more sorry or more afraid of being caught with that and trying to get out of the pain and the punishment from that, rather than saying, it's not so much the wrong that I've done, it's that I've become a person that actually does that. This is a posture of a heart that is so much different than just repenting from, from events in our life. This is a posture of the heart that says, you know, when I look at my life and realize that that I can be filled with pride and I can have that kind of anger and I can be so harsh and I can have lust and I can have greed. That's not what I want. I don't want to just be forgiven from those events. I want some healing deep within. I want reconciliation because I didn't just break a rule, I broke God's heart, I broke this relationship. I, I want reconciliation. I want, I want transformation. I want something to change within me. It's getting to where. We recognize the seriousness of our sin, and the joy that we have when there's restoration, and it's both. I use David as an example. Committed some horrific sins, and he was confronted by the prophet um, uh, Nathan. Right? Okay. Confronted by that, and in that he writes Psalm 51. He's very much struck by the seriousness of his sin. When he writes these words, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He recognizes the seriousness of his sin. But he's not just asking for forgiveness. He also recognizes who he's become. That he would think it would be okay to do some of the things that he's done. And he doesn't want to just... Get out of the pain. So he begins to pray, don't just forgive me. Create in me a pure heart. You know, change me. Grant me with a spirit that's willing to to walk and step with you. And he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life just beating himself up. So he prays in that that Psalm 51. He says, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, the, the, the guilt that I feel, let the bones that have been crushed rejoice that there's that. See, this whole thing of a penitent life is not one just saying I'm sorry for some stuff. It really becomes the gateway to this beautiful becoming more becoming. All right. So there's some thoughts on that. Let's look at a passage that Jesus talked specifically about this. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. This is a passage that isn't preached a whole lot. And I'm, I'm not going to go into it in great depth. Um, but I think it, it warrants looking at. And it's a kind of a concerning passage. It's on the heels of some events that have been very tragic, actually. Very, very uh, sad. And everybody knows about these things that have happened. Luke chapter 13 Verse 1 says this, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. We don't know the details of what happened here, but Pilate, as you may be aware, was a Roman governor. He didn't care about the Jewish people. He didn't care about the Torah. He didn't really care about the temple. He was there. It's probably not where he really wanted to be a governor, but he was there. And something happened with some people who had come from the north, up in the Galilean hill country. They'd come down to the temple to pr- present their sacrifices. And maybe there was a little of uh, squirmish, or we don't know the details. But apparently, Pilate had some of his guards going there and execute some of these Jewish Galileans who were in the temple sacrificing to Yahweh. Tragic. And the Jewish people have... No recourse at all. They they can't go to a court and say, hey, this was unfair. The Roman government ruled on this one. And so there was a a slaughter in the temple of these Galileans by the Romans. And some people brought that to Jesus, and Jesus responded to them. verse 2, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And he answers it. I tell you, no. Like, maybe they're coming trying to figure this out. Is this because they had done something wrong and this was like the retribution that they get? Is this because somehow they had done some sins and God was punishing them? And if that's the case, then maybe we're a little better off and we're not as sinful or we're not as wicked or we're not as evil and God's more happy with us. And and I think Jesus is basically saying, "Hey, hey, listen... That is not how God operates. To think that bad things only happen to bad people or that this happened to them because of some sin in their life. No, that's not it. And then he makes a statement that's a little puzzling. And this is where it fits in with what we're talking about. He says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now I hear that one and I'm like, okay, it's out of character For Jesus to use fear fear tactics to get people into the kingdom of God. He just doesn't operate that way. He never did. Now, some of us were raised, and and we've experienced that. Some of you know the fear tactics. Get some sweaty preacher up there. You're at some meeting. He says, oh, friends, if you leave this tabernacle tonight and you don't make it home, will you wind up in heaven or hell?" And that fear is like, uh, didn't plan on dying tonight, but maybe so. And it's like, that fear. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think what he's saying is this. Horrible things have happened to some people. Yes, it's tragic. But it's not because of their sins. It's because we live in a fallen, sinful world. There's no doubt about that. But instead of trying to compare yourself to thinking you're better than them, why don't you look here? Reconsider your strategy for living. Because what Jesus was all about was inviting people into the kingdom of God. And then he even comes a step, goes a step further. Because there's also the possibility that the people who brought this to Jesus were from Jerusalem. Because the, the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem really kind of looked down on the people from Galilee. I mean, um, I want to be really careful on this because I don't want to typecast it. The Galileans had a specific accent. And they were more agriculturally, and they were seen as being uneducated and even at times questioning their lineage. They they always looked down on them, like those Galileans. So Jesus brings it a little closer to home, and he tells about another horrible, tragic thing. Verse 4, Jesus says, Or those 18... Who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. Again, we don't know the details about this. But right outside the walls of Jerusalem in the area of Siloam where the pool of Siloam was, apparently there was a tower. And whether it was being constructed or there were just people on that tower, somehow that tower collapsed and 18 people lost their lives. People from Jerusalem, not the Galileans. And so he brings it again. It's not about where you're from. And do you think that they had sinned more than anyone else? And he does the same thing. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So, well, maybe he's just doing this, you know, giving them one more chance. Again, like when we were raised and we're going to sing just one more verse of Just As I Am. Even though we've done 17 verses. This could be your last chance. Well, no, I don't think that's it. I think he's trying to say, reconsider your strategy for how you're living. Are you living in the kingdom? And then, as classic Jesus, he says, let me tell you a story. So he tells him a story. Let me just read straight through it. Then he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I will dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, Again, when we've studied the parables, you have to be very careful that you don't read stuff into these things. Usually, Jesus was making one point, so don't like read every little thing into that. But in the context of what he's talking about, our lives are like a tree that was planted with the design of being fruitful, with the purpose of producing. That's our lives. And Jesus, as as the one who cares for the garden, he wants to give every Everyone, every chance to produce you know, the fruit in their life, to, to be who God has created them to be. You say, oh, okay, well, I, I get that. So, but what does it have to do with repentance? Well, if you're not bearing fruit in your life, reconsider your strategy for living. And in addition to that, when John the Baptist was talking about repentance. When he comes out of the the wilderness and he begins preaching, he says this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, I got caught, or I don't want to get punished. He says, no, it's supposed to bring about transformation in your life. That because of that, that God willingly forgives, but it's to bring about fruit. It's the beauty of becoming... Becoming the radiant bride of Christ in your life. Let me shift gears and go a different route. This is an analogy I came up with on this uh, penitent life. And it may not be a very good one because it's kind of a medical one. And I'm a pastor, not a doctor. That's from Star Trek. (laughs) Blood. We all have blood in our lives. And blood serves many purposes. One of the purposes is that blood transports. So uh, if you think about it this way, you know, the blood swings by the lungs, picks up some fresh oxygen, takes it out to the different parts of the body, drops off the oxygen because our, our bodies need that, our muscles need that. When it drops off the oxygen, picks up some of the, uh, the carbon dioxide because the other oxygen was used up, picks it up, comes back, brings it to the lungs, and then it's ex- exhaled out. Not only that, but it transports nutrients as well. So it picks up some of the nutrients from the food that we've eaten and what our body has processed and takes it around to all the different body parts and the muscles that need that because without the, the nutrients it won't, won't you know, grow, it won't flourish, it won't be strong. And it picks up some waste products and brings them back and, and flushes them out as well. But if, if in this whole process these waste products, whether it be carbon dioxide or the others, they're picked up and they're not able to be exhaled, they're not able to be flushed out, then the toxins begin to build up in the body. And when that happens, your body doesn't flourish, doesn't function as well, you don't feel good, you're tired, you're not going to grow, you're not going to be vibrant in your life. And one of the things that helps with all of this are the kidneys. Because the kidneys filter this blood and take the impurities and the toxins out. But if your kidneys are working below their capacity, I mean way below their capacity, or if they have failed, then you've got an issue. Because the toxins will not only build up in your body and your system, not only cause you to feel horrible, not only take down the the potential to to be filled with energy and to, to grow and to flourish, it can even become fatal. And if that's the case, then you have to do something very deliberate and very intentional And usually that's dialysis. And in dialysis, your blood runs through this machine that cleanses it from all of these toxins. And in talking with people who've experienced dialysis, they will say, and I've asked them specifically, before you go in for dialysis and after you come out of dialysis, is like night and day. Before, and it depends on how long it's been, but... You just don't feel good, you're low energy, you're sluggish, you just, because of all these toxins. But when those are cleansed out, then there's life and there's energy and there's vitality. Now, this analogy falls short on all kinds of fronts, so don't write me about it, just go with me on it. Is that this whole thing of penitence is like a spiritual dialysis. Is that when we bring these things to God, it allows the toxins of our lives to be cleansed. And that's why in Psalm 51 again, when, when David would write, he would say, you know, cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. It, those toxins will be, will be taken away. And we see this um, again in 1 in, uh, uh, John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, this life of penitence is to bring these toxins the pride, the greed, the selfishness, the judgment, the lust, the anger, the stubbornness, all of these things and just ask that those would be cleansed. Not to just say, I'm sorry. But I want to become who you've created me to be. I want my life to bear fruit. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. Repent, repent, reconsider your strategy for living. Repent then and turn to God so that he won't be ticked off at you anymore. No, but see, that's how we think. Repent and turn to God so that he won't squish you like a bug with his thumb. That's how we think. He says, this isn't for God's sake. <laughs> this is for our sake. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And look at this, times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Do you see the beauty of a penitent life? God says, I don't need something from you. I want this for you. I want you to experience the freedom from all those toxins, those spiritual toxins in your life. I want you to continue to be transformed, to be shaped into the image of Christ. And speaking of Christ, all through this series, we've said that our definition of virtue is that it's the attitudes and the attributes of Christ. You might be saying, but Christ was sinless, right? And he wouldn't need to repent and there wouldn't need to be a penitence with Christ. So this one falls out of the realm there with you, Bob. I agree. But I think with Jesus, we can find that Jesus was the penitent one for sins that were not his own, but as if they were his own. You think about the way You'll let me be crass with this. Jesus rethought his strategy, though it was pre planned. In heaven's eternal glory, he could have stayed there, but he turns and comes to a finite, broken, fallen earth. The eternal, infinite, holy, and righteous creator of the universe becomes a weak, frail, little baby boy. And not only does he become one of us, he identifies with us. On the eighth day, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple for him to be circumcised. Circumcision was symbolic of cutting away the sin and everything unclean, and yet Jesus was sinless. But he identifies as one who has sin. Thirty years later, John the Baptist comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus gets in line to be baptized. No wonder John pushes back. But Jesus says no. And he's baptized. He identifies with us. And three years later, we find him on a cross taking the punishment of the guilty though he was innocent. Last week I mentioned Isaiah 53, this man of sorrows, this chapter of the suffering Savior. Let me just read a couple of passages out of that to see that this Jesus, the holy, righteous, sinless one, becomes the penitent one on our behalf. Isaiah 53 4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities, he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 8, For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, God made him who had no sin To be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that whole idea of Jesus turning and rethinking and changing His life? That in all of His holy and sinlessness, He becomes sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That he was rich and yet for our sakes he became poor so that we might know the riches of God's grace and his kingdom. He experienced God turning his back toward him so that God would turn his face toward us. He experienced the rejection so that we could receive acceptance into the kingdom of God. He was cut off from the land of the living, so that we could have eternal life. He tasted death so that we could experience life. He became like us so we could become like him. So when it comes to penitence, to having this penitent life, To kneel in humility, and to know that when you kneel in humility, Jesus has already been kneeling there waiting for you, because he took the sin so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could be transformed, so that we could know the beauty of becoming, becoming the radiant bride of Christ. Acts 3, one more time. Repent, reconsider your strategy for living. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The beauty of becoming, becoming, being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That's the virtue of penitence to live in that.